This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. For the week of November 17th, Beatles haircuts are a huge problem. There's a Pearl Jam fight in New Orleans. A 19-year-old saves the who. Aerosmith are on The Simpsons. The Eagles party gets way out of hand. Bill Wyman gets a divorce. And Ozzy stops burglars in his own home. Oh, we got a wild one this time around. It's a look back in music rock star history for the week of November 17th. This week back in 1963, a guy named John Waitman, he was the headmaster of a grammar school over in England, he banned all pupils from having beetle haircuts, saying, quote, This ridiculous style brings out the worst in boys physically. It makes them look like morons. You see, the Beatles were pretty darn radical at the time. It's the early 1960s. Men and boys were expected to have short hair, preferably brushed back with a side parting. And by short hair, I mean practically military style and definitely behind or above the ears. The short back and sides was the standard cut of the day. Well, the Beatles' haircut, the the hair hung below their ears, it covered their ears basically, had no real part and seemed to hang right over their heads like like a mop, hence the mop top nickname. It was a pretty wild move back in the day, but it had a remarkable effect on male hairstyles and fashion. You see, when your favorite band has got long hair, what do you want to do? You want to grow your hair just like the guys in the Beatles. Well... As new groups emerged, their hair seemed to get longer and longer each time. Of course, the Rolling Stones came out, and they had long hair. Then the Kinks came out, and they had even longer hair, and so on and so on. Now, once the shaggy long bangs were made popular by the Beatles, well, of course, all the dudes started copying their style, and that became a huge problem. Schools would throw you out of school. People were suspended from jobs until they got a proper haircut. Remember, 1963, you couldn't have a shaggy haircut with the hair just over top of your ears. Now, it doesn't matter at all. This week back in 1970, Led Zeppelin III was number one on the album charts. Now, the original cover and interior gatefold art in the vinyl album consisted of a very cool, surreal collection of random images. Now, behind the front cover was a rotatable laminated card disc covered with even more images, including photos of the band members which showed uh, through the holes in the cover. Now, the distinctive cover was based on a suggestion of Jimmy Page's that it should resemble an old-fashioned gardening seed chart. If you've got one of these original albums from 1970, man, I hope you hang on to it and you're taking care of it because it's probably worth some money. In 1993, Pearl Jam was riding high on the success of their 10 album and their Versus album. They were on tour. And this week in 1993, they showed up in the city of New Orleans to do three sold-out shows. Well, when you're going to have some downtime in between gigs, what are you going to do? Well, first of all, you're going to record some songs in New Orleans for the Vitology album. And you're going to go outside, and you're going to go to the French Quarter, and you're going to blow off some steam. And that is exactly what happened this week in 93, when Eddie Vedder was arrested in New Orleans. Pearl Jam? We're uh, just two weeks into their tour, and Eddie was arrested on charges of public drunkenness after a barroom brawl. This happens in New Orleans every single day. Now it was Eddie Vedder's turn. 
Here's what happened. After one of their shows, Eddie was drinking at a bar on Decatur Street in the French Quarter with members of the opening act called Urge Overkill. By the way, Urge Overkill, great band. Anyway, and they were also with Jack McDowell. He was a pitcher for the Chicago White Sox at the time, and he was a huge fan of Urge Overkill and Pearl Jam. Well, Eddie was allegedly involved in an altercation with a local resident in the French Quarter. After a wild verbal exchange of opinions, Eddie reportedly spat in the dude's face. Never cool to spit in somebody's face. I don't care how mad you are, man. Well, either way, a full-scale fistfight erupted, and the fight spilled out into the street. Now, in the chaos that followed, Eddie was said to have knocked the guy he was arguing with unconscious, while McDowell, the pitcher for the White Sox, was flattened by a bouncer from a nearby bar. When the police arrived... They charged Eddie Vedder with public drunkenness and disturbing the peace. He was released on $600 bond. A few months later, Eddie was acquitted by a New Orleans judge. This week in 1974, drummer Keith Moon of The Who collapsed during a concert. While The Who were halfway through the concert, by the way, this is not a good time for your drummer to collapse. Well, luckily, 19-year-old Who fan Scott Halpin had traveled to see the band play at San Francisco's Cow Palace. Scott Halpin ended up on stage. Now, for some fans, this is the stuff of dreams. Can you imagine being out there in the crowd? In fact, 14,000 people were there, and then you get called up to play with the biggest rock band in the world. Well, that's exactly what happened to Scott Halpin. That evening, Keith Moon arrived at the concert venue with a young female fan on his arm. Ah, groupies. Anyway, Keith was always jittery before a show, and when the groupie offered him something to calm his nerves, well, of course, Keith Moon accepted. So Keith Moon threw back a handful of elephant tranquilizers washed down with a glass of brandy. You know this is going to go horribly wrong, right? Although Moon's playing was obviously erratic during the show, he was making it through, and nobody really realized what was going on. Fast forward to a few minutes into Won't Get Fooled Again, and he literally grinds to a halt behind the drum kit, like a toy whose battery had just run out. And then he falls backwards, and he has to be dragged off stage. Pete Townsend said from the stage, because the audience was like, what the hell just happened? Because they stopped. He says, quote, we're just going to revive our drummer by punching him in the stomach. He's out cold. I think he's gone and eaten something he shouldn't have eaten. It's probably your American food. Well, the show's got to go on, right? Well, meanwhile, there's chaos, okay? Backstage, Moon's roadies <laughs> revive him and called another doctor to tr come in and take a look at him. Well, Keith didn't care about another doctor. He insisted on going back on the stage where he tried to wrestle Pete Townsend before being dragged away by Daltrey. Then Keith Moon climbs behind his kit while he starts playing, he's injected with a shot of cortisone in the ankle. But partway through the song Magic Bus, Keith Moon passes out again. And again he was carried off stage, and this time for good. The show must go on, right? Well, the rest of the Who struggled on stage through the song See Me, Feel Me, with Townsend and bassist John Entwistle trying to fill in where the drums would be. Meanwhile... Backstage, Artemis Pyle, what a cool name, right? He was the drummer with uh, the Who's opening band that night, Leonard Skinner. 
they asked him, hey, can you get up there and play the drums for the rest of the concert? But Artemis Pyle said he was too scared and he didn't know any of the Who songs. So he said, no, I can't help you. When Pete Townsend was on stage, he half-jokingly asked the 14,000 people in the crowd whether there was a drummer in the house and preferably somebody good. Well, 19-year-old Scott Helpin begins waving his hands in the air like crazy, and he was actually up close near the stage. Now, luckily, Helpin was a drummer, and he claims that the last thing he remembers was all of a sudden being thrusted up on the stage, swallowing a shot of brandy, and then being introduced to the crowd by Roger Daltrey. That and the size of Keith Moon's drum kit. Scott said it was ridiculous that tom-toms were as big as his own bass drum at home. Now, video evidence shows Scott played quite well on a jam through a Holland Wolf's Smokestack Lightning and Spoonful before struggling a little bit on the Who song Naked Eye. Either way, he's up there banging away with one of his favorite bands, The Who, for about 30 minutes. Helping then walked away from the kit an even bigger Keith Moon fan than ever before. Uh, Scott says, quote, I only played like three songs and I was dead. That is the stuff of rock star dreams right there. Well, Scott Helpin went on to get married, manage a rock club, play in several groups and become a composer in residence at a center for the arts in California. Now, he rarely played the drums. He preferred to play the guitar. Now, sadly, Scott died of a brain tumor in 2008 at age 54. Now, his wife, Robin, wrote to Pete Townsend to tell him her husband had passed away. And she actually was astonished when Townsend replied with a message to be read out at Helpin's memorial. And this is what Pete Townsend wrote. Quote, Scott is often in my mind and always with the greatest gratitude and affection. He showed such youthful courage and humor standing in for Keith Moon that fateful day. Scott played well, too. He played the drums brilliantly, smiled, and went home. I measure my life by great and good people I have occasionally met. Scott is one of the great and good ones. I worked that out in the 30 minutes on stage with him. That must surely say something about the man. Whew, dusty in here or what? Yeesh. This week back in 2016, a very furious letter from John Lennon to Paul McCartney and his wife Linda, which was written after the Beatles' breakup, uh, sold for nearly $30,000 to an anonymous collector in Dallas. Now, in the two-page typed draft with handwritten notes, which, by the way, how pissed are you when you've typed out a letter, and then you're so pissed back and you ran right more shit on it. That's awesome. Anyway, uh, Lennon criticizes Paul McCartney and Linda for their treatment of him and his wife, Yoko Ono. The attack in the letter is said to be in response to Linda's criticism of him not publicly announcing his departure from the Beatles. Badfinger were an English band from the late 1960s, and you've heard their hits, Come and Get It, No Matter What, Day After Day, Baby Blue. And they had a song called Without You in 1970 that's been recorded many times and actually became a U.S. number one hit for Harry Nilsson. And decades later, it was a hit for Mariah Carey, of all people. 
Now, after their label, Apple Records, yes, the one that was formed by the Beatles, folded in 1973, Badfinger struggled with a host of legal, managerial, and financial issues. Now, this led to guitarist Pete Ham taking his own life in 1975. Well, this week in 1983, Badfinger singer and songwriter Tom Evans also committed suicide, and he did it by hanging himself in his back garden of his house from a willow tree after a bitter argument with Badfinger guitarist Joey Molland about the royalties for Without You. Family members said that the singer-songwriter was never able to get over his former bandmates Pete Ham's suicide, and I say that that's the reason that he actually committed suicide in his backyard. This week back in 1980, Don Henley of the Eagles was arrested. It's not funny. After a naked 16-year-old girl was found at his home in L.A. suffering from a drug overdose. He received a $2,000 fine with two years probation. Now, before you go burning all your Eagles albums, let me explain what happened. You see, it was November 21st, 1980, and Don Henley had a party at his house, a farewell to the Eagles party, as the band was now officially ending and breaking up. Invitations were extended to the crew members and the roadies and all their friends, right? Well, as was the custom for such rock star parties, Don Henley arranged for a madam to send over some prostitutes. Now, one of the prostitutes was the underage girl who was 16 years old. By the way, the age of consent in California at the time was 18. However, her age was not known to Don Henley. Don asserts that he did not have sex with the girl. And according to him, he spent most of his time upstairs on the phone with his girlfriend and hardly circulated at the party at all, which was taking place on the main floor of his home. Now, this will probably surprise no one, but drugs were passed around at this party. Now, Don would later say that these drugs belonged to the roadies, of course. Now, regardless of who brought them, they were inevitably offered to the girl. She indulged in some cocaine and some quaaludes, but her body wasn't apparently uh, ready for that amount of drugs. Uh, And in the morning, while many were sleeping it off, she started having seizures. Don was alerted and called 911 right away. Paramedics arrived, the girl was treated, and thankfully, she recovered. Well, this is when the police become involved because at the point after being contacted by the paramedics, they show up and they search Don's house and found more drugs as well as another underage girl. Well, when you own the house, you're getting in trouble. Don was arrested for drug possession and contributing to the delinquency of a buyer. He pled no contest and received uh, two years probation in addition to a $2,000 fine. The court also required him to get drug counseling. So there you go. Now you can decide if you want to go and burn all your Eagles albums. This week back in 1991, Aerosmith made a guest appearance on the TV show The Simpsons. It was in season three, episode 10, and the episode was called Flaming Moe's, in case you're one of those Simpson nerds. Anyway, Aerosmith were the first band to make a guest appearance on the show. Now, since then, numerous rock stars have shown up on The Simpsons episodes, uh, including the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Smashing Pumpkins, R.E.M., U2, Sonic Youth, the Moody Blues, the B-52s, Fish, Blink-182, Metallica, The White Stripes, and Green Day were actually in the Simpsons movie in 2007. 
Back in 1990, Bill Wyman announced that his 17-month marriage to model Mandy Smith was over. Now, Bill Wyman, you know him. He's the guy who spent almost 30 years as the Rolling Stones' bassist before leaving the group in the early 1990s. And, of course, he played on their most celebrated albums and songs over the years. Well, rock stars get married and divorced all the time, but this one is a little different. You see, Bill Wyman met Mandy Smith when she was... 13 years old at the time, and Bill Wyman was 47. Now, before you go burning all your Rolling Stones albums now, let me explain. Wyman said that Smith made him feel as though he had been, quote, whacked over the head with a hammer when he first saw her. Well, he ended up helping her find work as a professional model, and the pair began spending more time together, which, of course, led to dating. Now, despite the obvious age difference and Wyman's reputation as being a serial womanizer, Smith's mother reportedly supported the relationship. Remember, she was 13 at the time. Now, the couple kept its relationship a secret for two and a half years before they do make it official in a civil ceremony and they got married. Now, not long after the wedding, the wheels, of course, started coming off of the marriage. Smith's mother reportedly joined the newlyweds on their honeymoon. Yeah, why not? The mother-in-law on your honeymoon. What a great idea. Well, then it got worse because the media ate it up and the scrutiny cast upon the couple took its toll. They separated in 1991 and the divorce was finalized two years later with Smith receiving a $600,000 payout. Aha. Anyway, Wyman defended his relationship with Smith, stating, look, it was very emotional and special at the time. It wasn't how it was reported to be in the press, and it was the only time it ever happened in my life. A lot of people understood, but a lot of people didn't, and the media certainly didn't. They treated me like crap. Now, not surprisingly, Wyman and Smith are no longer in contact with each other. But just prior... To the couple being divorced in 1993, things between Wyman and the Smith families took a bit of an even stranger turn. When Bill Wyman's oldest son, Stephen, announced his engagement to Mandy Smith's mother, Patsy. The couple's marriage, of course, only lasted a couple years when they divorced in 1995. Now you can decide if you want to go burn all your Rolling Stones albums. This week in 1994, Pearl Jam released their third studio album, Vitology, which was first released only on vinyl, and it became the first vinyl album to appear on the United States uh, album charts since the domination of the compact disc format in the 1990s. They followed with uh, a release of CDs, and it became the second fasting-selling CD in history behind only Pearl Jam's previous release called Versus. This week in 1997, NXS singer Michael Hutchins was found dead in his hotel suite in Sydney, Australia. He was 37 years old. Now, Hutchinson's body was found naked behind the door in his hotel room. He had apparently hanged himself with his own belt, and the buckle broke away, and his body was found kneeling on the floor and facing the door. Now, it has been long rumored and suggested that his death resulted from an act of autoeroticism. But 
let me get this straight right now. There's been no forensic or other evidence to substantiate that suggestion was found. He hung himself, and that is it. Still, obviously, tragic. It was back in 2004 that Ozzy Osbourne struggled with a burglar who escaped with his jewelry worth about two million bucks from his mansion. <laughs> yeah, now let's let wrap your head around that for a second. Ozzy Osbourne, even in 2004, he was skinny and frail and old. How is he stopping a burglar? Well, the story gets way more interesting because Ozzy's wife, uh, Sharon Osbourne, explains that Ozzy likes to sleep in the nude. Now, cleanse that from your skull because that's a horrible visual. Anyway, he's in his bathroom, standing there naked, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees this guy going towards the window that was open on the first floor. So Ozzy runs after him with all his man goods flopping around, and he grabs the guy by the neck, and the guy's in front of Ozzy, and Ozzy's behind him. He's got him in like a bear hug around the neck and the headlock. And Ozzy's naked, by the way. Ozzy said the guy panicked like a madman, and he was talking a foreign language, right? Well, the burglar finally broke free from a naked Ozzy Osbourne and then jumped 30 feet from a first-floor window. Now, the guy was obviously injured and later arrested. Now, did he jump? because he didn't want to get caught, or did he jump because there was a naked Ozzy Osbourne draped over his back? Either way, he jumped. The Music Notes and More podcast is written, produced, and voiced by me, Jason Ginty. Please be sure to tell your friends about it, forward it on, spread it around through social media so other people get to hear these crazy rock star stories. And be sure to like and subscribe to my podcast as well. I do appreciate it. And follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and on my YouTube channel.